0: Hi everyone and welcome to Oscar Wilde, a podcast about film always counting down to next year's Oscars. I'm Sophia Simonello.
1: And I'm Nick Rercro.
0: And today we are talking about my favorite movie of the year so far, The Power of the Dog. I'm so excited. we are talking all about what this means for Oscar season, for Jane Campion's career, and comparing it to her film The Piano, which kind of gave her some Oscar success where she won best original screenplay. So, if it's not obvious already from previous episodes or from just how I sound today, I am so excited to finally talk about this movie in depth. We will get into spoilers at the end. So, if you've been dying to know what this movie means, I have many theories and I think that I've finally unlocked it. So, stay tuned for that, but if you haven't seen it yet, definitely Now before then and go see this movie.
1: I'm also really excited to talk about these today. They are thinkers and I enjoy them, but sometimes have trouble understanding them. So I'm excited to break them down. It's also fascinating that this is Jane Campion's 12-year return to film, and it's been 28 years since she made The Piano, which skyrocketed her to success, especially in the Oscars' eyes. It wasn't her first movie, but it was definitely her most well-known. So then after we talk about The Piano and The Power of the Dog, we can talk about what they have in common and why she's making movies like this. I think there's a specific angle that she presents, but it's also fascinating how these contrast really well, too.
0: Definitely. So a little bit about Jane Campion. She was the first woman to ever win the Palm Door. She won the Palm d'Or for the piano. She was the second woman to be nominated for Best Director. Only seven still have been nominated. And she was the sixth woman to win Best Original Screenplay out of nine total. So obviously, like still a lot of work to do in these categories, but she is for sure, I think a pioneer here at the Oscars, and I really hope that this year she continues that and gets nominated many times.
1: I definitely think she will. So starting off with the piano description, after a long voyage from Scotland, pianist Ada McGrath and her young daughter Flora are left with all of their belongings, including a piano on a New Zealand beach. Ada, who has been mute since childhood, has been sold into marriage to a local man named Alistair Stewart. Making little attempt to warm up to Alistair, Ada soon becomes intrigued by his Maori-friendly acquaintance, George Baines, leading to tense, life-altering conflicts. It was written and directed by Jane Campion. It stars Holly Hunter, Anna Paquin, Harvey Keitel, and Sam Neill. Going over awards, first, this won the Palme d'Or at Cannes, and then Holly Hunter also won Best Actress. At the BAFTAs, Hunter won again for Actress, and also Production Design and Costume Design won. The Golden Globes, Holly Hunter again, and then WGA, Jane Campion won. And then with the LA and New York Film Critic Circles, at both, it won Best Film, Runner Up, Director, Actress for Hunter, Screenplay, and then at LA, it won Supporting Actress for Anna Paquin, Cinematography, and Score, Runner Up, and then at New York- cinematography one runner-up and then at the oscars it won three actress for hunter supporting actors for paquin and original screenplay for campion and it was nominated for five others including picture director cinematography editing and costume design so i think the clear message is that holly hunter is the favorite or at least the favorite to award for this movie do you agree with that how do you feel about the piano
0: so I agree that she's the favorite for awards, but she's not my favorite. I really love Anna Paquin in this movie. She kind of steals the show from me, even though I do think Holly Hunter is pretty phenomenal in the role, um, like being this woman who doesn't speak. She gives an excellent performance and I think the best of her career. I really enjoy this movie. I find it to be like very beguiling, very visually impressive. Jane Campion, and we will talk about this for sure with The Power of the Dog, but she is a visual storyteller, as like filmmakers should be. And I think she packs a lot into her images, and this is just a, an incredibly poetic movie. It's also very odd. I love that she won original screenplay for this because it is just such a unique fable of sorts. So I think there's a lot to talk about with this one. I will say up front, I do prefer The Power of the Dog and even her film Bright Star, which came later. I really love that one. But I think this is a good film to be like remembered for in your career or that people associate mm-hmm. you with. It is a very strong one. You hadn't seen this one before, though, right?
1: I hadn't, No. As you could probably guess, it was a harder watch for me. It took me a few sittings, just because this week was also hellish. So I was watching a lot on the train, and I really wanted to focus. And I was like, okay, I have time. I have 10 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) I
0: love that you watched this on the train.
1: This is like watching Tenet on an iPhone. Like, total tragedy for the filmmakers. But it's a stunning movie. Like you said, Jane Campion is a visual storyteller and... This and also Power are magnificently beautiful movies. Just every shot is a painting. There's so much design in each shot, and I love that. As to the actresses in this movie, I totally agree. Anna Paquin was incredible. I didn't think I would love a performance from such a young actor so much, but her accent, her mannerisms, her, like, childish yet mature sense about her was just so fascinating to watch. And she isn't the youngest winner, which I thought she was. She's the second youngest behind Tatum O'Neill for Paper Moon for supporting actress. But I do think that Jane winning for screenplay is very interesting. The story itself is bizarre. If you Mm -hmm. were to write it down on a piece of paper or explain it, (laughs) I was like, this is what we're watching, but by the time, like, there are two climaxes in this movie, pretty much, and each time I was totally in it. It blew me away.
0: It really is just such a strange story on its surface, right? It's about this woman who she hasn't spoken since she was six years old, and the movie starts out with her expressing that she doesn't even know why she hasn't spoken in that long. So you're like, okay, Mm -hmm. what is gonna happen here and I think what's pretty brilliant about Anna Paquin is that the way that Jane Campion sets up this story is that the parent-child relationship is kind of flipped. You have Anna Paquin as Flora her daughter being the one who is like navigating conversations with the Maori people or with Alistair she's the one who is translating for her mother. she serves as her interpreter and I think that that is really unique and kind of sets up Anna Paquin well in this role. I think I knew that she won before I had ever seen this movie. And for me, when I see that a child actor has like taken on the awards <laughs> campaign for that year and won, I'm always a little dubious. But here I thought, no, this is completely deserved. I thought she did really, really well, and Mm -hmm. actually beat out Holly Hunter for The Firm, which I think is interesting. Holly that year was nominated in lead and supporting, (laughs) but the biggest comparison just off the bat that I have to The Power of the Dog is that Jane Campion is a very tactile filmmaker. I think that you see her characters touching a lot of objects or touching other characters. She imbues objects with a lot of meaning and She uses everything that's in the frame to give you a good understanding of who these characters are beneath the surface, and that's why I really like her as a filmmaker.
1: And I think this movie being directed by a female is why it's so intriguing, too. I feel like no male director would ever tell the story of a mute woman who is obsessed with her piano, and Mm -hmm. this is the way she speaks to people, but does it so delicately Mm -hmm. and also in such a complex way. And there's kind of like this rhythmic way to how she shoots and to how she's telling the story because for myself as a viewer what seemed odd on surface level was like broken down throughout the movie and I was able to more easily digest it which is sometimes what I have issues with especially with using quite a few period elements in these movies which is maybe why I struggled.
0: I in a period drama I mean, not all of them, but they're telling modern tales. Like, the power of the dog could happen in our neighborhood, like, tomorrow. That type of tale is universal. So is it the costumes? What about it? Because it's for them, living at the time, and borrowing this quote from Greta Gerwig when she was talking about little women, that was the most modern thing those people knew. So the story that you're getting is modern.
1: What's kind of fascinating is that it feels like Victorian, like 18th, 19th century, Mm -hmm. but it also feels timeless at the same time. Like, I totally agree that it's not placed in the past. You know, it could be any certain date of these people colonizing this Maori land and creating their own civilization or what they knew from how they lived back in Scotland. So... I think the costumes set everything up to give that period feel, I guess. And it's a little bit in the language. It feels, it's not Shakespearean, but it's very elegant. Like the dialogue isn't modern.
0: So you need modern dialogue. That's why you don't like period dramas.
1: I don't need it, but yeah, I guess in short, yeah.
0: Yeah. I don't know. I feel like what I like I mean, period dramas I love. I, it depends on the period, obviously. But I do think for me growing up, like, that's the way I learned, like, women's stories are through costume dramas. Like, that's where those get to happen. So anyway, as an aside, I do like the dialogue in this. Like, it does feel very poetic, very lyrical. I love the one at the beginning when they're on the beach and Anna is dancing, like, spinning around. Looks like a ballerina. I love that. I just feel like those are the types of shots I want to see. Not just like Mm -hmm. an establishing shot of where we are, um, but something like that. That's gonna, I think, help me understand the characters and the landscape where we are. So I really like how Jane Campion does that. So for this movie, let's not talk about the ending. I do wanna encourage people to watch it, but I don't wanna spoil anything about like what happens to the piano and this love triangle of sorts.
1: These maddening men. Ugh. Mm -hmm. Horrible.
0: Horrible. What this movie also does is it just shows you, like, how much power and control these men have over both Flora and Ada and the story and how men view women as like property and currency and Mm -hmm. especially back then and how, what it means, I guess, right to like find your voice as a woman because Ada herself doesn't have a voice as far as like we can see what we think of as a voice and she communicates through her piano. So what happens when she doesn't have access to that voice anymore, I think is a really unique element to the story and why It is so strange, and so like you really have to think about it. It's very haunting, the way that she unfolds this narrative and forces Mm -hmm. you to think about things like that.
1: And it is intriguing how she presents the men, too. I almost felt like George was the underdog at first because Alistair was more in control and had more of a looming presence. Like, he has those tattoos on his face which show mm-hmm. him maybe as more of a, a local. But then as we get to know them, it's actually Alistair we're rooting for instead of George based on their behavior and how they treat Ada. But along the way, there are still a lot of problematic issues that <laughs> they mm-hmm. present to her. My one dad joke for like later on in the movie is like she played him like a piano. <laughs>
0: <laughs> My God. We're so early in this recording. Can't wait to see where the next one's going to (laughs) go. It's also interesting, too, like how Jane Campion, she is not afraid of male nudity. I will say that for this movie and for the next one. I think compared to a lot of other male directors who will show a lot of Mm. female nudity, she really flips that. And I can say I appreciate it sometimes more than others. (laughs) But I appreciate her for, you know, breaking new ground there.
1: For 1993, definitely. I mean, she shows Holly naked too. Mm -hmm. But I think that's an element to her movies of this vulnerability, this eroticism, not really erotic thriller, but there's beauty in what she's showing. And it's not just more of something to show.
0: Exactly. And especially at that time, like, it was so gratuitous. And like, the directors who would have influenced people who were directing movies in the 90s, like, yeah, a lot. But yeah, she really knows how to give sexual tension. Um, Some of my notes that I've written down, I was like, oh my god, like, this is, she really knows how to make you feel that between characters. And again as like a tactile filmmaker with touch like being at the center it can just be like the way that two characters hands touch the way that a cigarette is used i'm stepping on power of the dog so much here because i just want to talk about that but she is so good at that as a filmmaker and mm-hmm. like i said last time teeing up this episode riveting sensual cinema she knows what she's doing <laughs>
1: obviously Holly is doing so much here because she's not speaking. It's all in her face, her reactions, her movements, and it's a pretty physical role for her. But not to get too ahead of myself, if you could give this movie one Oscar, what would you give it?
0: I would give Jane Campion screenplay. I know we talked about the performances, and the performances are really strong, but the story for me is just really daring and It's new. It's very original. It's a great idea. So I would give Campion that Oscar. What about you?
1: Do you think anything was snubbed too?
0: I don't think so. I feel like these feel right to me. This movie won three big Oscars, but not picture or director. And that's just because Schindler's List was a juggernaut. And Mm -hmm. I mean that this... I can say, at least in my opinion, should not have beaten Schindler's List. That is a great Best Picture win, in my opinion. So I feel like I feel like eight is a good number of nominations for this movie, and those big wins, too.
1: <laughs> and I ask about snub because I think I would give this score. I could give it to Anna Paquin. I could give it to Jane Campion. But the score, I think, is literally how Ada's speaking to us and to these men. But I loved it. Yeah, I thought it was really beautiful.
0: You're right. Yeah, the score. I didn't think about that because I think in my brain I thought that it was nominated, but it was not. So I would throw in the score to Michael Nyman. Okay, is it time?
1: It's time. <laughs> yes. Only another man.
0: So, The Power of the Dog, description here, adapted from a 1967 cult novel by Thomas Savage, notoriously ahead of its time in depicting repressed sexuality, The Power of the Dog excavates the emotional torment experienced at a Montana cattle ranch in the 1920s. Here, melancholy young widow Rose has come to live with her sensitive new husband, George. Though their lives are increasingly complicated by the erotic, potentially violent behavior of his sullen and bullying brother Phil, whose mistrust of both Rose and her misfit son leads to tragic consequences. This film was written and directed by Jane Campion. It stars Benedict Cumberbatch, Kirsten Dunst, Cody Smith-McPhee, and Jesse Plemons. So far for awards and festivals, this premiered at the Venice Film Festival, where Campion won the Silver Lion for Best Director, and it was second runner-up at TIFF for People's Choice. It is also played at a number of festivals, including New York Film Festival, where we both saw it. So what did you think of The Power of the
1: Dog? I definitely didn't understand this when I first saw it, and I kind of left underwhelmed, but I did not like it. Like, it is a beautiful film. There's also a lot happening, and you have to break down, just like the piano, movements, glances between characters, like tiny things that slowly add up, and this is definitely a slow burn, but you have to be on it. like You cannot be tired at all during this movie.
0: I don't really know where to begin. I saw this, and because you'd seen it first, and I asked you what you thought about it, you were like, no. <laughs> you were like, this is maybe not getting nominated for Best Picture.
1: Did I say that?
0: Yeah. You were like, it's maybe like sixth through eighth. Like I'm moving it down in my rankings.
1: I think it's a harder movie for audiences than other ones, like Belfast that we've talked about you know ones that are and we said this on that episode too but other movies that are easier to consume but I feel like it could go either way for voters
0: yeah just all this to say I went to the screening I saw it at noon and I just wasn't that excited I was expecting it to be kind of like news of the world just like kind of dull and from the moment The Johnny Greenwood score started, and we get the Cody Smith McPhee voiceover, where he says, When my father passed away, I wanted nothing more than my mother's happiness. For what kind of man would I be if I didn't help my mother? Until the lights went on after the credits, I was on the edge of my seat, nearly in tears because of what was happening in front of me. I could not believe how many symbols, how many parallel images. And I have not had an experience watching a movie like this since I saw Phantom Thread in 2017, where I just couldn't believe that someone had done something like this, where I just, like, felt so overwhelmed by the artistry, by how it felt like some great work of literature that someone had handed to me. So the thing is, is, like, when you see Christopher Nolan movies like Inception... Like, you have this, like, oh, I need to go through these theories, and what does this mean? That's what I felt during this movie. With every little piece of information I was getting about these characters, I was learning something brand new, and it is the only movie that I have seen, maybe in the past five years, where I didn't see what was coming. Maybe Parasite's the other one, but that's it.
1: Interesting. I think the ending, we can totally break that down at some point, because you really don't know what's going to happen. I think from what I heard from people or had seen from the trailer or just the story in general, not that I had read the original material, but you kind of assume it's this broke back-ish story. Mm -hmm. And then you're like, okay, so how are they getting together? What's going to happen from the looks of the trailer? like I didn't assume anything happy was going to happen. So I was like, okay, how is this going to end? It is not any of that. I think it's fascinating how she builds to sort of become that but it's not
0: yeah this is a story about self-loathing it's about masculinity and femininity and the ways that men express themselves and the type of men who still feel entranced by that type of performative masculinity everything that was on the screen had a purpose every single shot in this movie had a purpose And that is ideal. I feel like we never really get that. And I just found something in every frame of this movie.
1: I think as we talk, we can kind of break down commonalities between the piano and the power of the dog.
0: The first Mm -hmm. one
1: you've mentioned already, toxic masculinity. That's the easy one. And it's really what Phil identifies with. That is his character. And it's upsetting because as we learn about his past and Bronco, who that like mysterious Person was, and also contrasting with Peter, who is sensitive and really knowledgeable, but also just gets made fun of all the time, especially by Phil. So Campion sets up these two characters in this relationship so, so well.
0: Yeah. So the story is told in five chapters, basically. It's not like the French Dispatch where you have like an anthologized story. It's just five chapters of varying lengths. But when this film opens and we first meet Phil, we learn so much about him, which is that he lives on this big ranch, but insists on sharing a bedroom with his brother, George, who he doesn't really seem to like really at all. I mean, he's horrible to him. He calls him fatso, but at the same time, you know, it's not love. It's a need for control, and that is what dictates all of his relationships in this movie. And we also hear about Bronco Henry, who, much like Rebecca in Hitchcock's Rebecca, operates as this ghost-like figure throughout the movie. We never meet Bronco Henry. We only see Bronco Henry through objects, hear about him through stories about his relationship specifically with Phil and him as this presence in the story. I'm going to say another hot take here. I think this movie is closer to Hitchcock than anything David Fincher's ever touched. That is because of the way that she plays with sexuality, tension in relationships, characters we never see, but more important than that, doubles. But in this first chapter, it's established what kind of person Phil is, but. Also, we start to learn that he's actually brilliant, but why is he so entranced by this type of masculinity? Why does that happen to him? But just in that first chapter alone, we're introduced to our four characters who will take us through the story. Phil, his brother George, Jesse Clemens, Kirsten Dunst, before she's married to George, and her son, Peter. We learn about them, too, that, that Rose's husband died. Mm -hmm. and she's a widow. So that's all that we learned kind of in the beginning, but it's still so much that's going to take us through this story, and I love that. So feel free to respond to anything that I just said, or we can jump ahead to Oscars stuff, and we can, like, unpack Mm -hmm. those things further. Maybe that's the best way, so I'm kept on task.
1: (laughs) Okay, well, let's get started with Oscars, Um, (laughs) starting with Below the Line production design, and costume design. And I think they play off one another really well. This sets us up in this 1920s Montana, but we're in New Zealand, really well. And the mountains, the landscape is very much a part of the story. So how do these work for you in setting the scene for this film?
0: I love the production design and the costume design. I think there were a number of things that Kirsten was wearing in particular that I did really love. But I think they just added so much to the characters like Peter's jeans being way too big on him or Phil constantly wearing his cowboy attire. Like Mm -hmm. he wears, he always has those, I don't know the proper term for them, those things that like go over his pants.
1: Like the chops?
0: Is that what those are? I think so. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) He's like boots on. He's always dirty, like always Mm -hmm. a mess. Like all of the costumes I think add so much to the characters and Additionally, with production design, I felt that, yeah, it really puts us in 1920s Montana. A lot of that is also due to the cinematography, but I think that the way that this ranch set up, the way that the interiors look, I felt that I always had a good understanding of like who the Burbanks were and what it was like to live in that house That w- and why it would feel so isolating, especially for a character like Rose.
1: This setting is so bleak, but... I think that just mirrors the story really well. I like how this house in the middle of this huge field, they are surrounded by these mountains. And that's exactly how Rose feels. That was probably my favorite element of that. The dog in the mountains. Do you like this? What about it? What does the shape of this dog being in this mountain add to the story?
0: It adds everything. It's the center of the story.
1: And I guess if you want to join that with what the Bible verse means, and that reference to the title, and how all of this brings the story together.
0: Okay, so the last line of this movie is, deliver my soul from the sword, my darling, from the power of the dog. Dogs in the Bible are bad. They're not man's best friend, they are bad. And a dog is an evil person in the Bible, generally. So deliver my soul from the sword, my darling, from the power of the dog. That is, again, as a bookend here, that's the last sign of the movie, that is Peter saying that Rose, his mother, is saved from Phil. And if we go to the mountains, in the second chapter of the movie, when they're looking at the mountains, Mm -hmm. one of the other cowboys says, has anyone else seen what you've seen, Phil? So this dog that's in the mountain is all about what you can see and what you can't. It's about what's right in front of you, if you can see it. It's about if you can see the evil in front of you. Mm -hmm. And the only people who could see the dog in the mountains were Bronco Henry, Phil, and Peter. Did you see the dog in the mountain? Because some people who've seen Mm -hmm. this movie didn't see the dog. So,
1: Yeah, I saw the dog.
0: If you're asking, it's shown the proper amount of times because that is the purpose, is that like... Can you see what's right in front of you? Can Mm -hmm. you interpret what's there? And it's the connective tissue between these three men is that they could see what others couldn't. And when you can see what others can't see, like how frustrating that can be. I mean, I I think it's brilliant. It's it's the through line of the entire movie. This whole movie Mm -hmm. is daring you to say, pay attention to what is right in front of you. And people don't.
1: Okay. Fascinating. I like that.
0: That's why I love the cinematography here. Shot by Ari Wegner. This movie's gorgeous. How much is packed into these frames Mm -hmm. and like how much there is to interpret in just a look from a character, in the angle that a character is being shot in. There is a low angle shot of Benedict Cumberbatch and a great one of Cody Smith-McPhee too, where when I watched it this time, I was like, Belfast? Yep. This is what a low angle shot should be.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Cinematography, again, like the piano, stunning, absolutely beautiful. There's a story being told through the camera apart from the screenplay. And that's not done as often as I would like it to in cinema. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where the, no pun intended, power comes from in this story. I think cinematography is a nomination lock I hope so. I'm worried that it could have the trajectory of Nomadland, where it's the front runner supposed to win, loses to Mank.
0: Is Mank Belfast? Um,
1: I'm not saying that, no. You're not saying it out loud. (laughs) I think it should win, but I am worried that something else could take its place. But from the other categories we've mentioned, I don't have production design in. I could definitely see costume. How do you feel about these three?
0: Okay, so production design first. I think we do have to consider things like being the Ricardos and West Side Story. Absolutely. They're period films again. I think especially being the Ricardos is a threat. I really just don't know what to make of West Side Story. I think the French Dispatch obviously could get in. The production design in that is stunning. But again, that also depends like how much the Academy likes that movie and whether that's going to happen or not. I think production design, it really just depends if you're like less is more or more is more. And usually there are more is Mm -hmm. more group. So this doesn't really fall into the more is more. I mean, there's a lot to it, but you know, with costume design, I think Cruella and Dune are really the only ones where I'm like, this is definitely happening. (laughs) Um, All of the craft categories, I feel like it's just way too early. I just need Mm -hmm. a better understanding. Cinematography, though, I do think is going to happen. I, most experts on Gold Derby also have that happening, thankfully. I still think we have to think about Dune. We have to think about the tragedy of Macbeth. And we have to think about Belfast. I feel like those are kind of the big four that I'm going to consider at the moment. I'm really sorry. I feel like Belfast, we need to like bleep it out. <laughs> <In>
1: our... <laughs> you just have to bleep out all of my reactions to you saying the word. <laughs>
0: But yeah, I mean, it's a black and white one. This is in color. So that's a worrying thing, sadly. Speaking of Belfast and categories where you don't want it to end up, we have another possibility here, which is for best sound. And I thought that the sound work in this movie was really impressive. I'm curious, like, what do you think about its chances of popping up in a category like this?
1: I feel like I'm going to keep saying this, but I feel like Parts of the movie or components of the movie may be too subtle for voters. It's a quieter film with a louder meaning. And I think the sound and editing, which we can get to in a little bit, both of these components could either play really well with voters. If this movie does get a lot of nominations, we could see it showing up in both of those. But if it only hits the few key categories, then I feel like it could miss here.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's far from a guarantee. I think that we do have a lot of, like, bigger, louder movies, like Dune and, like, No Time to Die, which they do go for movies like that. If Don't Look Up plays well for them. I could see that happening. But I do think it's going to get in for editing, and that nice editing and sound combo that we do get quite often, that could just come along with it. I, knock on wood, see this as being, like, a mank or the irishman or that like big netflix contender that gets a lot of nominations i'm really hoping fingers crossed that this is the movie that gets the most nominations oscar nomination warning because it is totally possible especially with the acting categories that that happens
1: not don't look up
0: stop that please i feel no differently about don't look up now that we have the full trailer Mm -hmm. maybe that'll change when i see it but no thank you for now I do think though that the sound like really enforces what's happening in the story and really works to build that tension that's there. So if we're in a just world, which we're really not, it will get nominated. Hopefully we're lucky and it's there.
1: And I think the sound work, which uses a lot of diegetic sound, contrasts really beautifully with the score composed by Johnny Greenwood, which you mentioned earlier. I think that is for sure I think, different than the piano. It's more brooding here, and you get that Western feel. It is kind of giving me There Will Be Blood, which, no surprise, he also composed. But I think overall, it's something I can revisit and re-listen to, because it's wonderful.
0: It's out on Spotify now. It's an excellent writing score. If This Somehow Wins... I will scream. I will be so excited if Johnny Greenwood finally wins an Oscar. He's given me so many of my favorite scores over the years and is consistently robbed, um, especially for Phantom Thread when he lost the shape of water and then when he was ineligible for There Will Be Blood due to their stupid rules. So I really hope that he gets in here for The Power of the Dog. would love to see a double nomination also for the Spencer score because I also really love that one. This one, though, it definitely I like how he doesn't really compose like character themes, but instead really, I think, is inspired by the colors that the DP uses and the moods with the setting. This score doesn't feel like your standard strings based Western score. And that I think is what I really like Mm -hmm. about it. It feels really appropriate to this dark type of story.
1: And just quickly, I will say another commonality is the titular piano, which is in a key scene in this movie.
0: (laughs) Yes. When I saw the piano in The Power of the Dog, I screamed, mainly because the scene when all of the men are carrying the piano in, I was like, Mm -hmm. oh my god, we are here again. (laughs) 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 But it works really well here. And man, do Benedict Cumberbatch and Kirsten Dunst know how to play off of each other in that scene when she's practicing and he's upstairs making fun of her Mm. with the banjo? Wow. (laughs) Love it.
1: I had seen The Power of the Dog first, so I didn't even recognize Uh that parallel. But now that I think back to it, it, that's kind of funny.
0: Especially (laughs) as it's used as a tool in The Power of the Dog also as like her way to communicate with these rich people. And... The Mm -hmm. way that he gets inside of her head to make her fail when she is trying to do it. And it's always something that, you know, she keeps saying, like, I don't want to play the piano. Like, no, I don't have to. I don't have to do this. And they pressure her to do it anyway. And then she can't perform. And that is just such a brutal moment in the movie. So Mm -hmm. I love that she uses the piano in very similar ways here. So we touched on editing briefly. Um, This movie was edited by Peter Skibaris. I think the editing in this movie is brilliant. I think that the pacing of the movie works really well. I do think that the pacing can be challenging. That might be like my one critique of the movie is that that's what took me like a little bit to adjust to was that some of it feels like Mm -hmm. very elongated and other bits of it feel very quick. But I do think that's all intentional and... I definitely respond better to a story that's edited in this way. So I did really like um, the editing here. No quick cut, 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 cut. We got some nice (laughs) long takes. Mm
1: -hmm. Got to settle in. Lots of long takes. And that adds to the slow burn of it. And what I can find challenging sometimes in longer movies, not that this movie is long, but ones that are very methodical. And I think editing getting in as a nomination should be pretty probable it's pretty high in gold derby it's third behind belfast and dune i feel like it's more in the lead with dune to get in they're again doing different things but achieve a great goal so next for screenplay it's in the adapted category it was based on the 1967 novel with the same name I feel like overall with the screenplay, they're doing or saying less, but I think that works in their favor. Compared to The Piano, I feel like there's more happening, more explicit action than in The Power of the Dog. But what do you like about the screenplay?
0: So I haven't read this novel. I'm happy I didn't read it before the movie, though, because I'm glad that I had like all the surprises ahead of me. So I can't comment on, like we did for Dune, the differences between the book and the movie and what they chose to leave out. But I do think that Jane Campion did a really good job of making this feel like her own. Especially, you know, we talked about the piano being an original screenplay. It was this very unique, bizarre story. And taking a novel that was kind of this cult hit from the 60s and making it feel like a Jane Campion film is really cool and I I love how she did Mm -hmm. that I feel like the characters are so well developed and we know just enough about all of them and you know the screenplay isn't just the dialogue so I think she did a really nice job with this book and I'm really excited to read it so I can compare the two and see what she chose to keep in and what she chose to leave out As far as Gold Derby goes, it's leading right now in adapted screenplay, and I really hope it stays that way, especially, we'll talk about the other categories, but I feel like this is her best shot to win, especially considering the competition. Original's a bloodbath.
1: In terms of exciting adaptations in this category, I would love to see The Lost Daughter be getting recognition, but I think it's really going to be The Power of the Dog and Nightmare Alley fighting it out. You've seen the originals, and I have not.
0: I don't know. I mean, it just doesn't feel like a winner in this category. I haven't seen the movie, the new one, though. I haven't seen it. Mm-hmm. I just don't want to entertain the thought. Right now, I'm living in my peaceful world where she's the frontrunner, and that's that. Until that's disturbed, I'm going to stay right here.
1: <laughs> and I think it is. I think Jane Campion will win another Oscar for screenplay, at least. Please. So.
0: At least. Okay, so let's talk about acting. Starting out, who had your favorite performance in the movie? And then we can talk about everyone and what we thought and where they stand in our predictions and everything like that.
1: My personal favorite was Cody Smith-McPhee, followed very narrowly by Kirsten Dunst, followed by Benedict Cumberbatch, who still had an amazing performance, but is still third to me. Rounding out this quartet, Jesse Plemons. I think they could all get in, but I would be shooting for three nominations in the acting categories. I think it's going to be really hard for two people from the same movie to get in. Yes, I don't think Jamie Dornan is getting in. But I think if there's one of them getting in, I'm shooting for Cody Smith-McPhee.
0: Yeah, I mean, me too.
1: The way he... I don't know. He's so perfect for this character because he plays sensitive and somewhat feminine really well but also it's pretty ambiguous and Jane doesn't make any conclusions about this character and these relationships of these characters but I think these actors are telling all that they need to through their performances and that's why he was my favorite. Kirsten goes through so much during this movie. It's like had to have been traumatizing for her. Like seeing her crawling on the ground drunk with that glove. Oh my God, like, the gloves. Uh, <laughs> what's your order? Who did you like the most? Who do you see getting in?
0: I really had a difficult time, like coming to terms with this, where I realized that I love Benedict Cumberbatch in this movie. He's my personal favorite. In who's running for best actor right now, like I would love to see him win. Leading up to this, I made the fatal error of not trusting Jane Campion and saying, like, oh, it should be Michael Fassbender, or it could be different people who could be in this role because I just didn't get it. But mm-hmm. this, like, menacing, self loathing man who is so captivated by this type of life combined with someone who went to Yale and was a classics major and feels also very connected to nature in very sensual ways, specifically in the scene when he has Bronco Henry's, like, handkerchief. That, to me, I felt like, okay, this actor knows what he's doing here, and I loved his performance. I thought he was just astonishing. Definitely channeling Daniel Plainview he's not Daniel Day-Lewis and There Will Be Blood, though. Like, he's not that. But I thought he got the tone and the mood exactly right. And if you listen to him talk about this movie, he is just so gentle and cerebral and just, like, very British and an elegant person. And it just doesn't fit with this character at all. So you know he put in a lot of work to get there. And yeah, I hope he wins. For now, just sticking with Benedict Cumberbatch, do you think he's in? Do you think he has a chance to win? Like, What do you think of Best Actor as a category?
1: He's definitely in. He's top two. It's going to be a race between Will Smith and Benedict Cumberbatch. So I think part of it might come down to Will Smith has been nominated twice and Benedict has once. Will's just been around a lot longer. So I think that's going to help. His memoir just came out, but... I think they both give really moving, really transformative performances. I would still say Will Smith is winning, but I think it could come down to who's campaigning harder in February.
0: I think I'm just like kind of bothered by the whole like Will Smith has it sewn up thing that is like everywhere. Like we don't have any mm-hmm. evidence of that. He has not won a precursor yet. Neither of them have, but like we don't know. And I could totally foresee a situation where Will Smith wins the Globe. He wins SAG, and all of a sudden, Benedict Cumberbatch has the BAFTA, he's pounding on that door, and we get those secret ballots that are like, Will Smith is great and everyone loves him, but I voted for Cumberbatch because he plays this villain so well. Or this exact same things that happened last year where it's assumed that someone is going to win, and then people vote otherwise because they like the movie better, they like him better in the role so i think what benedict cumberbatch does in the power of the dog actors like feel more connected to because it's so intense whereas will what he's giving us is much more standard and he does give a good performance too but benedict has the transformation thing going for him and he's Mm -hmm. also everywhere he's campaigning really hard so i don't know i just i feel like the brits will come through for him
1: i guess that'll be interesting yeah definitely with bafta
0: I thought he was great. He really, really impressed me, and I'm very happy that he did, because the type of performance I was anticipating, this movie really would have been a rough go for me.
1: I just, I need to watch it again, but I had trouble with his accent in like the first third of this movie.
0: He has certain words that sounded weird to me, specifically his O's, but here's what I have to say about that. I think that this character, part of Benedict's process and part of the way that this character is supposed to sound is that you can bet that he squashed that Montana accent when he went to Yale. When he was this like, I'm a classics major, I'm living my life in New Haven. I bet Phil tried to get rid of that accent. And now that he's back in Montana and that's not his life anymore, he Mm overperforms the accent. So I think it's part of the character that it sounds very exaggerated. Like, I don't think it's just, oh, I'm Benedict Cumberbatch. I'm going to try out this Montana accent because this character has a Montana accent. I think that it's heavily put on because that's what the character would do.
1: Yeah. Okay. I can see that. I'll try to think of that when I watch it again.
0: (laughs) I am such like a Cumber girl, like, defender now. Like, I don't know what (laughs) happened to me. I really don't. This is so crazy. Okay. Let's talk about Cody Smith-McPhee. I had never seen this individual before in my life until this movie. I loved his performance. And I felt like he was perfectly cast to be this weird, unsettling, sensitive, feeble character who presents kind of a conundrum for the audience. Because we start the movie and he's basically telling us what kind of man would I be if I didn't protect my mother. But as it opens up, he's crying in the kitchen, he runs away, he runs outside to go hula hoop, He really wants to avoid Phil at all costs. You're kind of like, who is this character? But I think that Cody Smith-McPhee plays it perfectly. And when we start to see the power dynamic shift near the end, especially I think in like the fourth and fifth chapters, he becomes more confident. It looks like he's found his voice as an actor. And just the Mm -hmm. way that he gives these very pointed looks to Phil The one in particular I'm thinking of is when he, like, when he's smoking this cigarette, I was like, oh my god. Every compliment Mm -hmm. I can give.
1: Well, is it when he returns from school, when he gains all of this confidence, and he kind of, like, forms a plan of what he's going to do to protect Rose?
0: I think so. I think when he comes back from school, first he is a little worried, because when we see him, like, try on his pants, and he's so skinny, and he talks about making this friend, and it's so sweet and rose tells him to bring this friend to the ranch he's like no there's someone i don't want him to meet and it's phil so he's still afraid but that's when we start seeing him like doing the dissections and it mm-hmm. feels like he's coming more into his own then and that's i think when i really start to connect with the character and see but i still like never really saw where he was going which i think is pretty brilliant like if that's not just the script that's the actor too so my dream would be for him to win in supporting. Like, I would want that actually more than Benedict to win Best Actor.
1: I would love for Cody to win in Supporting Actor. That pants look is a look. Mm -hmm. I was very into it.
0: It's crazy. Like, he reminds me of just like a runway model, but also he looks like Mm -hmm. this dorky kid and he looks alien. Like, you just don't know where he came from. He just kind of like plopped into this world and i i love that i just thought it was perfect i don't think it could be anyone else in the role supporting actors an open category right now like it's very competitive but we really don't have one person i feel like who has the narrative to win but it is crowded and we have really big over-the-top performances like jared leto well
1: what if it comes down to cody versus bradley cooper
0: why are you doing that to me At this point in time, I've seen Cody's performance. I haven't seen Bradley Cooper's performance. I'm going to be honest and go with the performance right now that I like better and say that Cody should win. That might change when I see Licorice Pizza next week. (laughs) I can remove myself.
1: This will be an interesting fight to have if it's like the power of the dog versus Licorice Pizza in multiple categories. Well,
0: if it's that, I am going to be a very happy camper because... (laughs) The other alternatives, I just hope he gets in. Bradley Cooper, Mm -hmm. I don't know. I mean, I'll be able to comment more on it when I see it. And then I'll probably change my tune entirely and be like, this man needs an Oscar.
1: He's not a leading actor in this movie, but his character is very important to the story. Everyone is. And I think that is also telling of a great supporting win. And like what I've heard about Bradley Cooper and Licorice Pizza, it's a shorter performance
0: my other one that i do want to get in is john bernthal which we talked about last week but yeah i think if cody won too it wouldn't be category fraud like he's a true supporting player in the movie Mm -hmm. which i appreciate okay time for kirsten she needs to get nominated she was so good in this i don't really know i guess why people are saying that it doesn't feel like a winning performance i've heard that comment and i just want to ask why because she gets to be drunk And being a drunk mom in a movie, like, that feels kind of like a winner to me. She gets a lot to Mm do. She has a devastating scene when she is at that dinner. And all of a sudden, it is like we get the Rebecca thing again, like the woman who does not belong in the house, who has to all of a sudden, she's holding the tray of drinks again. And she's forced to just... Sit at that piano and try, and she just can't. And one of my favorite shots in the movie also is when they're the governor and his wife, and Phil and George's parents and George are all getting up to leave the table, and she's still sitting there. And we get the shot of her behind as they're all getting up. I think she's fabulous in the movie. I love her, and I really hope she gets nominated. Also, a really tricky category this year, but I'm hoping she gets her first nomination, which is insane.
1: Yeah, it's very deserved. I have her in the lead ingenue ellis really made me feel things in king richard so uh, i don't know it's gonna be tough i think for kirsten it's been a long time coming Mm -hmm. and i would love to see her finally win you know i say this as i'm looking at my melancholia poster on my wall so
0: (laughs) did you know that pta was the one who recommended her to lars von trier for that
1: Mm, amazing yeah so other performances do you think jesse plemons thomas and mckenzie anybody else getting in
0: Well, considering I forgot about Jesse Plemons (laughs) just now, (laughs) that's not a great sign. I think what's hard about Jesse Plemons here is that he has a really challenging role, actually, which is to be kind and grounded and to show how he feels about his brother in very subtle ways, which is just not responding to him, which is pushing back in a really delicate way. I do think, again, perfect casting for this role, too. I would be happy if he got a nomination, but I do think what you were saying earlier about some of the other categories, like if they're not responding to subtlety, and if I have to put my eggs in one basket, I would go with Cody Smith McPhee instead of Jesse Plemons, even though he did give a good performance. Thomason McKenzie, what do you want me to say?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Better in this or Last Night in Soho?
0: Well, oh God, that's really hard. She's better in Last Night in Soho because she has more to do. I mean, she's a lead. Right. But this movie is so much better than Last in Soho. So I'm tempted to just go with this movie. Frances Conroy, also perfectly cast as George and Phil's mother. She's so spooky whenever she shows up.
1: Yeah. Mm -hmm. I
0: think because my intro to her was American Horror Story. story, story, Yeah.
1: (laughs) Okay, so on to director, the Jane Campion. Are you scared or how do you feel about this?
0: Of course I'm scared. Like, why wouldn't I be scared? If I'm looking at movies this year and I think, like, what was the most well-directed, it's this one. Because, like, yes, mm-hmm. like, other directors made really gutsy films, but just because this one is more subtle in certain cases doesn't mean it's not incredible that a woman in her 60s made a neo-Western about toxic masculinity and violence and alcoholism and ever self-loathing, all of these things we talk about. Like, that's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. I don't think she's going to get snubbed. I really hope not. I think that the narrative for this movie is her directing it, and she's winning prizes directing it. I think she's going to win critics prizes for directing it, and that's going to hopefully pave the way for her to at least get a nomination. I don't know about a win. I hope she wins, because I really can't imagine someone with a vision that is this complete and comes together in this way like I feel like she had a very exacting vision over this film and she made something that made me just feel deeply and I was just like I need to trust this woman from now on and I can't say that about the other directors stuff that I've seen this year that's not a slight to them it's just like she made me feel that
1: mm-hmm. you know I love Danny Villeneuve but I think Jane has crafted a stronger movie
0: oh my god everyone pause take that in replay it if you need to
1: yes Dune is grand and beautiful but what Jane does with a shot is layers deeper and that doesn't make either of them worse films but it just shows that she's really talented she knows how to imbue her films with this like elegant restraint and she's a master she's an auteur and I think she should be commended for that the academy will see but she deserves it
0: i could cry it's it's kind of crazy that someone like takes a break from film for that long and then just comes back with something like this that's just like oh i'm back mm-hmm. back at the top of my game and i first started noticing it you know there there's a scene at the beginning and we see peter outside hula-hooping and i thought just how strange like that she's just mm-hmm. showing this boy outside hula hooping to kind of relieve his anxiety. And then the next shot we see is Benedict Cumberbatch as Phil spinning a chair around in a circle. And I just, it was like lights went off in my brain where I was just like, whoa, she's showing us that they're so similar that she's going to set up this parallel structure throughout the movie with these characters. And I, that's what followed. We have Parallel mm-hmm. image after parallel image of these two men. We have Peter strumming his comb and Phil with the banjo. We have Peter dissecting a rabbit and Phil castrating these bowls. We have the flowers and the tassels. We have all these similarities between these characters. And when I saw that she was not using words, but she was using images to show that, I was like... Mm-hmm. You've got this. This is just amazing. And I trust you. And you don't really get that in films all the time. So, yeah, I I agree with you. I think she totally deserves it.
1: And I've said she should win before. Like, this isn't new.
0: It was just the way that you phrased it that made me excited.
1: Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Like, as you were saying these things, I'm remembering shots throughout the movie, like, of Benedict in the mud bath and, like, what they decide to show, or the blood splatter on the wheat in the field mm-hmm. and the scenery like inside the house. And I think that also, like with the director here, the other strongest point for me is the cinematography. So Ari Wagner did an amazing job,
0: yeah, absolutely. I think that you said earlier, it's like every shot is like a painting. And the way that she's able to like capture these landscapes and, The animals, but also like the movement of these characters when they're like outside or when they're enclosed in really tight spaces. I think that the most impressive thing that she does actually, in addition to just making it look beautiful, is giving you that feeling that even though you have this wide open space around you, you can feel so isolated and alone out there. You need to have someone who can show that in order for this movie to be successful, I think. Okay, let's briefly talk about pictures so we can get to the ending. Now we're running long. (laughs) I think this is going to get nominated for Best Picture. I feel like this is Netflix's strongest, like, artistic push for the category. I can see, just based on the raves that it's getting, a lot of people putting it as their number one, but I definitely see it as much more of a critic's favorite than this is going to win Best Picture. You might have another answer that will make me feel good about my life, but right now, I do not have a winning, but I do have it like in my top five.
1: I just don't know right now. We don't have a clear front runner. The only one that we have, yes, is Belfast, but it doesn't feel like a strong best picture winner right now. And that's apart from me disliking it. But I think just thinking of historic wins, it's like what is going to be the winner this year that aligns? And I just don't feel any of these yet. I think this is the strongest movie we have. I think if we're talking about COVID in the past year and how hard it's been for the film industry, like, yes, Dune would be an interesting pick, but I don't see that happening. My top three right now would be like Licorice Pizza, King Richard, and The Power of the Dog. And these movies are all different. I don't know. It's, it's tough, but it's definitely getting in. I feel very confident in saying that, but who do you think has the best chance of winning picture right now?
0: It's so hard because, like, I say Belfast, but I just can't imagine them opening the envelope and it's saying Belfast. It just doesn't feel right.
1: Kind of feels like Green Book to me.
0: No, it's not Green Book, but it doesn't feel like a winner. And I know that it's won a lot of awards and everything, but, like, will the Academy pick two films set in the American West directed by women (laughs) back-to-back?
1: That is very true. You it's, know?
0: Yeah. is <laughs> not a Western, but like setting wise.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: I don't know. I mean, Licorice Pizza, I also just like, again, because I haven't seen it, I just can't imagine the Academy going for a PTA movie for Picture. His movies are too weird. They're too oddball out there. So right now I'm going to say Belfast, but it doesn't feel right.
1: The Power of the Dog is giving me No Country for Old Men.
0: As a Ooh, okay, that might be closer. I mm-hmm. think I like that more. Before we talk about the ending, if you could give this movie one Oscar, what would it be?
1: Oh, God, this is another hard one. I really want to do an actor, but I'm going to go with Jane Campion for director.
0: I feel the same way. Like, there are a couple <laughs> I could give it to that I really like, but I have to go with Jane Campion for a director. She is what made it come together, and I think why I love this mm-hmm. movie so much.
1: So getting into the ending now, I just have one question because I felt like this was the thing I understood least from the movie. So Phil switches from bullying Peter to being his friend and wanting to make him a rope. Like this happened so fast and it didn't seem genuine to me. Like it always felt like there was some menacing reason for maybe why he was doing this. So do you have an answer for why this happened so abruptly in the story?
0: So I think that the reason it happens so abruptly is because of the chapter structure that we have. So we end the previous chapter where Peter has found like Phil's little stash of mm-hmm. photos and collectible things that we learn also belong to Bronco, Henry. And more importantly than that, right, Phil always bathes alone. He's away from the rest of the group. So when Peter sees him, all of a sudden... Phil has been exposed. That's a turning point. The act is up. And Phil has to find a new way to keep his power over Peter. And that is when we get Phil as the the next part of the Bronco Henry surrogate, which is that you can assume that this entire story, for the most part, is the exact same thing that happened between Phil and Bronco Henry. At one point, their relationship became abusive in a different way in a I'm going to take you under my wing and coach you and groom you way and this is where this happens we have to have a flip and the flip is when Phil is exposed literally and figuratively for who Mm -hmm. he is and then from there on we start this new chapter to move to where we need to go with Peter ultimately taking control Everything we know is in the images. We don't need more. We don't need him explaining like, oh, I I saw you. I'm sorry. A flip in an abusive relationship like this has to happen so it can mirror what we assume the old tale to be.
1: How do you think, and I know we don't need this, I think the relationship between Bronco and Phil is told really well. We know enough and that's it. But how do you think that relationship ended? Was it Bronco just dying suddenly, or was it Phil murdering Bronco?
0: I think Phil one hundred percent killed Bronco. I think that everything about that is right there on the screen,
1: but he idolizes him so much. Like why would he murder him? Just to gain that power?
0: He also abused him in the same way that Peter does to Phil. Mm-hmm. okay, because Phil is an intellectual. He says Romulus and Remus. he was Phi Beta Kappa, at Yale. Mm-hmm. What's Peter? He wants to be a doctor. What happened to Phil? What made him this way? It's Hmm. very psychological and Hitchcockian. That's messed.
1: So, so far through our discussion, I didn't really get the parallel of Peter being the next Phil. Mm -hmm. And I understood all the things happening, but when Phil dies, it just kind of felt like a random occurrence. But when I read that, Peter gifts him with the water so that he can soak the rope and... We had seen him go to that dead cow because of anthrax. So he poisons the water and he murders Phil. Yeah. And I was like, wow, that's incredible. Like now I need to go back and watch this as a thriller. Yes. Like it totally changes the movie.
0: Mm -hmm. Oh my God. Yeah. I think if you didn't realize that when you're watching it, this movie would seem so confusing at the end because... The death of Phil comes so quickly, right? It's like he has this cut on his hand, and then the way that, like, he doesn't show up to breakfast with the other ranchers. When that happened, when I first watched it, I thought, like, oh, my God, like, is he still with Peter? Like, are they going to catch them? Is this some, like, thing like that? And then when you see him up in bed, my first thought was still, like, he has this wound on his hand that's super infected. All those diseases mm-hmm. that existed back then i was like i don't know he probably got some
1: <laughs> that is literally what i great, thought Right, <laughs> like
0: disease from this cut like i totally missed it i thought that this cow that peter goes and finds like he's just doing that because he's into medicine we see him dissecting this rabbit he needs to practice yep. so that he can be a surgeon i like fully missed all of the mentions of anthrax like leading up to that until I saw it for a second time and was like looking for them but they're all there like all the clues are there for anthrax poisoning from these dead animals and again it was another parallel where I was like okay you know Phil he loves skinning these animals for the hides and you know he wants to make this rope totally was there and then the moment we're at the end and Jesse Plemons as George is kind of he's talking to the medical examiner or I'm not really sure what that character's role is but he says he mentions anthrax. I thought, "Oh my god. Oh my god, and it just all kind of clicked and then we see the shot of Peter with the dog. Finally, he looks happy. He's away from Phil mm-hmm. and well, it's all coming together and so I saw the rope that he's sliding under the bed at the end. Not only is he saying, like, this is the rope that I used to kill Phil, but it's like a mental like image, it's like a recollection on how his father died. Cody Smith McPhee in this movie actually reminds me a lot of Norman Bates in Psycho. Like I got very similar vibes of like protecting his mother, the way that his face changes when he sees that she's drinking Mm -hmm. and he pushes that bottle back under her pillows
1: you know, just the image of the rope and the way he kind of changes the meaning of death surrounding this object. Mm-hmm. You know, it was the same but different. Like, it was used to take a life, mm-hmm. but in this instance, he had the power of doing the deed mm-hmm. himself to protect Rose.
0: The final shot of the movie, I, I found something pretty unique in it. I'm not going to, like, read into this further, but I did notice that the little thing that you pull down the shade with, it's like that little circular pull the way that it's reflected in the window looks like a noose. Like it looks like a baby noose, Hmm. the way that it's hanging there.
1: Oh, that's creepy.
0: And the way too, that the parallels again between like Phil and Peter, it's like once Peter is fully tricking Phil, he says to Phil, and this is also why I think that Phil could have maybe killed Bronco Henry, is that Peter says, I wanted to be like you. And like part of that is him, you know, like trying to get him to to be closer and to trick him further. But also, is he becoming like Phil? Is he, you know, doing the exact same thing that Phil did once upon a time? Because they're so similar. There's also a line that Peter says that I really love that I wrote down when I saw it again, which is, do any of the calves die from wolves? Again, a wolf is a dog. We see the cows like all the time here. So like the dog being this like evil thing that is killing a vulnerable thing, but here like Peter is taking the death of this vulnerable thing and letting it be like his weapon to kill the dog in return.
1: Fascinating. Mm-hmm. It's good stuff.
0: Yep, using his eyes in ways other people can't. Because at first I was like, oh my god, this death is so abrupt. Like we knew it's coming, but like he just goes to the doctor, and then the next shot we get is of Jesse Plemons looking at these caskets. I was like, okay, that happened. He's dead. And then we, we go to the preparation of Phil's body for the funeral, and it's, it's really cool. I mean, it's morbid, but it's like he's the animal, and this whole movie is like comparing humans to animals, and at the end, right, he's like this alpha male animal who burned bright but burned out fast, and at the end, he's just, he looks the way that he probably did at Yale. He looks the way that he didn't want to look to go to dinner with the governor, So then you get like, what is his true identity? Like all of this, it's just really good. Oh, and speaking of like the Alpha's burning bright, Phil is always associated with fire imagery throughout the movie, which I thought was really cool. Burning the hides. He wants to burn them so no one else can have them. He takes the flower, the paper flower that Cody makes and burns it. Mm -hmm. We have a shot of a rope um, near the beginning that says like in case of fire next to it
1: yeah yeah. a rope
0: that you could use to like get out of the house but again like in case of fire if phil is the fire of Mm. the story like the rope is what's gonna get you out (laughs) i love that isn't that cool there's so much stuff like that in here
1: yeah so many little clues along the way Mm
0: -hmm. i probably sound like a mad woman but it's fun to talk through what did you think of the way that they show like the objects and like how the objects are touched specifically like the rope and Bronco Henry's saddle. Mm. Like it's all very sexual, but not in your face for the most part. That was a really unique detail to make it more erotic. And maybe it is an erotic thriller at the end of the day.
1: (laughs) For me, what was different than the piano, I think is the lack of touching. Peter and Phil might have a couple of moments where like he puts his hand on his shoulder or something, but there's a shot when they're in the barn that turns, that joins their faces together in such a way that I hadn't seen before. And that was mesmerizing to me. So even in that, they're so close, but they're not touching. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of my fascination with um, objects in this movie and how they were used.
0: It's interesting when you think about it, because I think that the objects are very sexualized, but the way that the people interact with each other, it's all tension. We don't really see anything to confirm so that we can know what happened between these two characters. And I love that because like you you kind of want to see what happens, right? You, you want it to go there, but because it doesn't, and I think it's because we never saw what happened between Phil and Bronco Henry either. Mm-hmm. I think that's all I can I can get through. I feel dizzy again thinking about this movie. Oh my God.
1: <laughs>
0: so that was our conversation on The Piano and The Power of the Dog. The Piano is on Netflix right now. The Power of the Dog is out in theaters. Please go see it in theaters if you can. It's a fantastic, overwhelming cinematic experience that I think... I definitely couldn't watch this at home because I'm so easily distracted. <laughs> but if you yeah. do want to watch it on Netflix... It's out December 1st. That's how I'll be re-watching it, I think. But um, either way, definitely check out both of these films. And I'm so excited to see how The Power of the Dog does this Oscar season. And let us know what you guys think of our theories if you've seen it. Thank you for putting up with me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, this was a great discussion. I learned a lot. And I am really excited to go see this again. Netflix has chosen some really tough watches for at-home viewings. This year alone, like, passing, I feel like, could even be hard. But Power of the Dog, it just, it does demand the big screen. I know that is going to receive some eye rolls, but I think the score, the cinematography, it very much should be seen on the big screen. I agree. Next time on Oscar Wilde, we will be doing another Oscar Rewind going back 50 years. We will be going to the 1971 Oscars. This is the year that The French Connection won Best Picture and Director. We're going to have a guest on the pod, Mr. Brian Rowe, who hosts Film at 50. And the point of this podcast is to go back 50 years and discuss all of the movies from that year. So that's kind of why we're doing it now. And then each of us will be picking a movie nominated from that ceremony. Brian has chosen The Last Picture Show. Sophia has chosen Clute. And I have chosen Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. (laughs)
0: Amazing,
1: yes, it was a nomination that year, and we're gonna have fun. <laughs> so... I appreciate that.
0: Thank you for not picking Nicholas and Alexandra.
1: <laughs> you know in a million years, I would never do that. <laughs> I
0: know I know you better than that, thankfully.
1: <laughs> so I'm excited to talk about these four movies um and the Oscars, and I'm excited to have Brian on,
0: yeah, I can't wait. These are some of my favorite movies, so I'm very excited to talk about them and Brian has a great podcast. We were on an episode of Film at 50 last year where he covered the 1970 Best Picture nominees and that Oscar race. So go back and listen to that. And yeah, I'm looking forward to it. It'll be a lot of fun.
1: Thank you all for listening. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Oscar Pod. Feel free to rate, review, subscribe. We will see you next week.
0: Thanks, everyone. See you next time.